All right, we, uh, as you know, this is our uh, Monday Bible study, and, and this series is on the Red Sea Rules, this little red book, and uh, if you don't have one, I think we still have a few left at the uh, front table up there that we'd be glad to give you, uh, and so hopefully you're keeping up with me and you kind of use this maybe as a weekly devotional. Uh, we're going to do... Uh, on most days, most Mondays, uh, one of the principles that are in here. And so last week we did the, the first principle, which is the, about the sovereignty of God. Realize that God means for you to be exactly where you are. Even if you're in a crisis situation, God knows where you are, and God actually means for you to be exactly where you are. But this week, uh, it, the second Red Sea rule or principle is about... Um, glorifying God. And it's about, okay, I'm in this situation. Uh, in what way can God be glorified in this? Or how can I make sure that God's glorified in this situation? Uh, and so we'll go through 10 of those in our study of principles uh, that are derived from Israel's experience at the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And um, they're, they're wonderful. When you get into a mess, when you get into a crisis, when you're facing a trial, uh, you've got to go to this book and, and memorize those 10 Red Sea principles. And I guarantee you they'll help you get through it. All right? So today is uh, about glorifying God or about the glory of God. And uh, uh, our, our uh, movie clip today... Uh, has very little to do with that. <laughs> but I think it does show that there's really no reason at all to glorify man. Uh, there's nothing that man does. We're, we kind of are all like the guy in, in this movie clip. Uh, you can see up here the outline that we're going by. I, I sent that to you. Uh, everybody should have that. Um, and so you can see today, uh, we're on the second one, be more concerned for God's glory than for your relief. Uh, and so we tend to be, obviously, when we get in trouble or have a crisis, we're all about, you know, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to survive this? But from God's perspective, uh, be more concerned for God's glory than for your relief, the second of the, of the principle. So it gets you thinking with a different perspective. Uh, you know, life is not all about me. We tend to go that direction. But the fact is uh, that God made us, uh, and we are here to serve him and glorify him. And so life uh, and is, is really about us serving God and glorifying him. And if we have that perspective, it kind of changes the whole way we think about our crisis situation. So uh, Exodus uh, 14, 4, if you have your Bible there, your electronic device, you can turn there. And also in Exodus um, 14, verse 17 and 18, uh, God gives his purpose statement. So you all know the story of the Red Sea. Uh, the uh, Israelis, the Hebrew people, were trapped at the Red Sea in front of them. Behind them is Pharaoh's army. There's no way out. And they're all crying and yelling, what do we do? How do we get out of this? Did you bring us out here to die? You know, we talked about that last week. Uh, 
and so in today's lesson, God gives his purpose for this happening. He gives his purpose for what he's going to do. He's going to do this incredible miracle of parting the Red Sea and saving them. They're going to walk through the Red Sea on dry land, cross it, and then he's going to destroy the Egyptian army and save the people of Israel. Well, the purpose statement is there, and the purpose statement, he says, God says, I'm going to do this so that I will be honored, and I will be glorified, and all will know that I alone am the Lord. That's what it's all about. In fact, all the mighty acts, the plagues, the miracles, all that he did to bring Israel out of Egypt uh, at every one, the purpose statement was exactly the same. So that everybody will know that I am God, that I will be glorified in what happens. And so uh, we, we think that life is all about us and, and about promoting yourself, and that's certainly a part of it, but it's really about, from God's perspective, glorifying Him, all right? Uh, and I wondered, uh, I was thinking about the. Uh, that's the, the, the purpose statement given there. I wonder what people out there, the, the public, all the great minds you know, that are on the internet, what do they think is the purpose of life? And so I went to the internet and Googled that, and I'll just give you uh, kind of a sampling of everything I found there. Um, Hugh Moorhead, the philosophy department of Northwestern University, said, no one seems to know the purpose of life. Psychoanalyst and author Carl Jung wrote, I don't know the meaning or purpose of life, but life looks like something we're meant by it. <laughs> Novelist Joseph Heller said, I have no answers and no longer want to search for any. <laughs> Aristotle, the great philosopher going way back in Greek history, Aristotle said, happiness is the meaning of life. You just try to be happy. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, the purpose of life is to be happy and content. Now here's my favorite one, Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody Allen said, the purpose is to not think about that stuff. <laughs> Except he didn't use the word stuff. <laughs> he didn't want us to think about it. Uh, and so... These worldly wise people, another guy actually said one more. He said, uh, if you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> you know, so obviously uh, it is a real mystery to uh, all the other people that, that don't consult God's word. It's a mystery. And so many philosophers would say that there is no meaning to life at all. Uh, but thankfully, the meaning and purpose of life is not a mystery for those who have the Word of God. For those of us who study it and believe in it, that it is the Word of God, we look in God's Word for the answers to these heavenly questions, and we see that God is the creator of all things, and that God created us with a purpose, gave us a meaning and purpose, even in the very beginning of the creation account, uh, and our purpose is to have that personal relationship with him, an intimate relationship in which we serve him and glorify him. The Apostle Paul said it well in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He said that 
my, my purpose, my goal, Paul said, uh, whether I'm alive, you know, he'd been arrested, and he's, whether they kill me and I'm dead, or whether I'm, I continue to be alive, my goal is the same, and that's to please God and make God look good, to glorify him. So uh, I think King Solomon uh, was the richest man in the world, uh, he amassed the greatest fortune. He experienced the greatest pleasures. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he details all of his uh, fortune and uh, all the wisdom and knowledge that he had and all the pleasures that he indulged himself in. You know, uh, I love his line. He, he said there, uh, I withheld nothing from myself. Right? <laughs> That's what he said when it came to pleasure. And he says, but at the end of the day, he wrote this when he was... Uh, elderly, and in the day looking back, he said, and you know what it all came to? It was all vanity and like trying to chase after the wind and catch it. You couldn't do it. It was all vanity. Uh, and so uh, all the people, the humanistic people, all the people out there that don't consult the Word of God, they really don't know. Uh, I looked up the history of the church about, you know, what is the church, and, and did they ever seek, did they ever come up with a statement of the purpose of life, the purpose of the human race? Uh, and, it, and the fact is, they did. And uh, during the Reformation in 1517, England, you may know if you're a history buff like me, that England kind of rotated back and forth religiously they started out uh, Roman Catholics, and they became the Church of England under Henry VIII, and then they went back to Roman Catholic under his daughter, and then to the Anglican or the Episcopal Church under Queen Elizabeth, uh, and then in the 17th century uh, to Puritanism, and then Presbyterianism, and then eventually back to uh, Anglican, the, the, the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church. Uh, and in 1642, the English Parliament, led by Oliver Cromwell, started a civil war against the Royalists and King Charles. And the Parliament forces won and began building a coalition of religious groups. They said, let's get everybody in here so we can all agree on what the Bible says. Let, let, and let's see if we can come to a conclusion all together on what the basic Christian doctrines are. And so they did that, uh, and it was called, uh, they, all the leaders were called to meet at Westminster Abbey. Have you ever, I know you know the song, Westminster Abbey in the Tower of Big, let's see, it's in London. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they all met there at Westminster Abbey, and they met and worked on this for four years. So this is no, they didn't take, uh, they took their time and they were very thorough. Um, and they were looking to come up with a common belief system and all the basic issues of worship and doctrine, administration, all the church ordinances, the whole deal. So after four years, they came up with a real large document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, one of the devices that they used in this uh, was to ask questions, and they had a catechism that they would that that came from that drive from the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, to give their churches to to learn. 
and uh, they would ask questions. And in the catechism, the question was the most important and debated of, of those was, what is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of mankind? And after four years of study, they had, they had all agreed that mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've found that you know, to be very helpful, and, I, and I'm amazed that they were able to do that. I, I, in some of my Bible studies, uh, before I gave this answer, I would say, what do you guys think that the uh, purpose of life is, you know? And you get all the, good, all the good answers people will say, and I imagine they said at the Westminster uh, meeting, uh, to do good works. You know, we were created to do good works, and that's true. To preach the gospel, that's true. To convert the world, to be kind, to leave a positive legacy, uh, to raise good, godly children properly, to serve the church, to find fulfillment, to be happy, to make others happy, to follow the golden rule, and many, many others. But what they found was, uh, these were all true, but they all fall under the overarching, all-encompassing truth to glorify God. If you do all these things, the result is you're glorifying God. And that's what we're here to do. And so they all kind of fall as subsets under the main reason, the main purpose of life, which is to glorify God. All these activities, if done, will glorify God. Uh, and so I think they were absolutely correct at the Westminster Confession that the purpose of life is to basically to, to glorify God. And to do that, you can put all those activities that everybody comes up with uh, underneath that umbrella and say, that's how we do it. You know, that Paul said, that how I make God look good because I'm out preaching the gospel and doing good works and helping people uh, and, and, build, and planting churches, etc., etc. And they went all the way back. The, um, the, the guys who met there at Westminster went all the way back to the creation account and they began with the creation, and the question was, why did God create us? And Isaiah 43, 7 says, uh, and this is God speaking, Isaiah is quoting God, man who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So God created us for his own glory. Uh, so God's purpose statement and all of his miracles throughout the Bible and everything that was supernaturally done by him in the Bible, all the acts like freeing Israel from Egypt and uh, parting the Red Sea, etc., all that was done, God says, over and over and over so that everyone will know that I am the one true God. There is no other. In all the great commission commands of the New Testament that you read, the same thing. We're, we are to, told to take God's truth and reveal God's glory to the world. And uh, so all through the New Testament passages, uh, like Colossians 3.17, uh, author writes, Whatever you do in word or do, deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, always giving glory and thanks to God. 
And in John 15, when Jesus was trying to describe the relationship between God and man, he says in John 15, uses a great uh, metaphor of the vineyard, and he says, I am the vine, think of me as the vine, and yourself as the branches. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, the branches bear the fruit, but they get all their sustenance and all their power from the vine. So he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So when you're abiding in Christ and you're representing him and doing it for him, for his glory, you're bearing much fruit in his view. But if you're off on your own, doing your own thing, independently, making up your own rules, he says, you are doing, in God's view, nothing. Nothing. Somebody said, well, I've got a friend who doesn't even believe in God, but he financed the such and such wing of the hospital. And you're saying that's not good? I'm saying you missed my point. In God's view, in God's view, that means Nothing. It's great for all the people that go there. It's great for me. I'm very thankful that he made it. But from God's point of view, uh, he created us to glorify him. All right? Uh, Hebrews 11.6, again, in that relationship with him is is how we do good works. And and the author of Hebrews says, uh, God demands your faith in Him, that you do everything by faith in that relationship with Him. And He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that's what it's all about, is our relationship and our representation, our service to the Lord. Uh, naturally, somebody's going to ask, well, wait a minute. God's up there. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. Why does God need the glory? Why does it all have to go to Him? I want a little. (laughs) I mean, come on. Why does God need the glory? And here's the truth. He doesn't. God doesn't need the glory. We need Him to have it. We need Him to have it. Think about it. We need Him on His throne, all-powerful. We need it to be all about Him. Think of the Red Sea. They're trapped at the Red Sea. What's going to happen? If it's left to them, if it's only them, they're all going to get wiped out by the Egyptian army. Those hundreds of chariots are coming through there, and they got those cool wheels with the big spikes on the end. They're going to grind them up. They needed God to be on His throne. They needed God to have the power and Him to wipe out the Egyptian army and for Him to get all the credit. Right? Yeah. Exactly. We need God to have that power and to be on that throne and for it to be all about Him. Because when we're in a crisis situation, I'm talking about unsolvable problems like they had in Exodus 14. And uh, I know, I can see all the scars even from here. (laughs) Everybody here has been in a crisis situation before in their life. They know what it's like, you know. And when you get there, you've got no solutions. 
We need God to have a solution. We need Him to be on the throne and for Him to get all the glory. Not me, not you. We need Him. We can't get the Israeli masses, three million, we said last, last week, across that Red Sea. We need Him to have the power and for Him to stop the Egyptian army and for Him to get all the glory. So, uh, when we think about uh, a trial or when we find ourselves in a crisis, be more concerned for God's glory than for your own relief. Uh, uh, just some more passages that, that in the Bible that make it real clear, and I, I think we've got them someplace. There you go, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever it is you do, do to His. Just realize that it's all about Him, and you're and whatever activity you're involved in, He expects you to represent Him as you're doing it. Uh, and then, if we got First Peter four eleven, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So everything you do, uh, he sees you as representing him. And as you serve, as you do good works or whatever, it's really about uh, glorifying him. Uh, you're helping individual people maybe or groups of people or the church or whatever, but from a spiritual perspective, it's all about uh, that relationship that you have with him. All right? Um, and we got uh, Psalm 86, 12. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, and with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. So, uh, David said, that's, that's, what all, that's what I'm all about. He, re he realized that. Um, and of course, he was an imperfect person just like us that didn't do it all right, but, but he had his head on right in the sense that he knew what the truth was. Uh, and he lived by faith. So that's a revolutionary thought to the world we live in, that God is more important than me. <laughs> Think about that. Everybody is so into themselves and their activities and who they are and self-promotion. The very idea that God is more important than me, that I'm actually not doing everything for me, I'm doing it for Him. Uh, God being glorified is more important than my comfort or my life. Uh, Paul, when he was in jail in Philippians 1, uh, they were trying to execute him, and, and that possibility was out there. And the church at Philippi uh, wrote and said, what's going to happen? We're so worried about you. What's going to happen? And Paul said, don't worry about it. He said, "Whatever, whichever way it goes, God's going to be glorified. If they leave me in jail here, I'm going to witness and share the gospel with all the guards. We've already had a bunch of them converted, he says. Uh, and if they let me go, I'll get to go uh, out again and serve the churches 
I'll come and see you again and try to build you up again. And you know what? If they execute me, I get to go home and be with Jesus. Hallelujah. He says, I got it made. Everything's great. Right? Because he had that perspective. And uh, that's what God wants us to have, is to think that way. Uh, come to that perspective. When you're in a difficult situation, uh, see that it's actually, in a sense, an occasion, an opportunity to bring out the, defi- the, of the sufficiency, excuse me, to bring out the sufficiency of divine grace. Uh, God is glorified in my weakness. When it's obvious that I can't get out of this trap, I can't overcome this mess, but God can. Uh, So it brings out the sufficiency of God's grace and reveals Him to the world around us as well as to ourselves. All right? Uh, And again, uh, the purpose statements in each of the ten plagues, uh, beginning in Exodus chapter 7, you know, He says... Uh, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt uh, for a very good purpose, which is to reveal who I am, God says. I'm going to do all this for a real purpose. Uh, And then he he goes on in verse 5, and uh, he says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. So that's what it's all about. From God's perspective, saving Israel out of there is is bigger than just them. He's going to let the whole world in on this truth that He is the God, the one and only God, and God alone. And He deserves the glory for uh, bringing Israel out of there. Again, in chapter 7, this is that process of all those uh, plagues and miracles that He did. Uh, thus says the Lord by this, the, the plague he did against Egypt, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and the staff, and it will be turned into blood. And so uh, when that happens, they'll know that uh, greater power, that the Lord did this, uh, and, it, and that uh, he's the one that's in control. Eight, again, another one. He says, tomorrow... Uh, may it be according to your word that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. So another uh, plague or miracle that he did. And all through those uh, first 12 chapters of Exodus, uh, we're given that purpose statement. It's made clear why all this is happening. All right? Uh, Psalm 106 uh, is a a great resource um, if you... Read that, Psalm 106, and we got that somewhere, there you go, uh, begins with a plea for the people, the congregation there at the temple, to praise the Lord because He deserves it. That, that's what He says. We are needy people, and God's mercy, love, and grace are necessary for us to survive. Without Him, uh, there's no way. Our praise is more than gratitude, for we give God all the credit for our blessings and salvation. Uh, And then uh, he gets into the situation at the Red Sea. Now this is, you know, hundreds of years later. Uh, And the psalmist is saying, don't forget, our fathers in Egypt, when they were slaves there, they didn't understand 
the wonders of God. That they said, uh, how will we ever get out of here? And, and how is this going to ever happen? And when they were trapped at the Red Sea, they said, we're going to die here. So they didn't understand God's wonders. They didn't re remember your abundant kindness. And at the Red Sea, they rebelled. You read it in the text in chapter 14. They came at Moses like a mob, and they said, you brought us out here to die, you no good so-and-so? Were there no graves in Egypt? Did we have to come out here to be buried? You know, and, and uh, that's what he means. They rebelled like that. They didn't trust God. Nevertheless, in spite of that, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. So he didn't save them because they deserved it. I think we, we get in that trap a lot. We think, uh, I deserve this. You know, why is this happening to me? Uh, Etc. Uh, but we see here in these situations when God actually does uh, deliver, save people like this, it's basically for Him, uh, so that people will know Him, that will be, He will be revealed and He will be glorified. You look at all the miracles that Jesus did, and there's a real purpose in all of them. Uh, we'd like to thank, and you're kind of raised to think that all those miracles Jesus did was because He. He was trying to help people and, they, and he was being compassionate. And that's a reason, but it's not the main one. If you really analyze the miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament, uh, he did them to reveal who he was. He did them to teach them lessons in faith. Things like this. They were always uh, teaching miracles that you, that you might say. Okay? So again, uh, God is going to save them uh, not because they deserve it. He's going to save them for His own name's sake. Uh, there was no credit to these people. <laughs> the whole three million of them, uh, there was no credit due them. It was all about what God did and how He saved them and took care of them. Uh, and they needed God to get the glory again. They needed God to get the glory. They needed Him to be on His throne to get them out of Egypt. And He certainly deserved the glory that He received from these, these great acts. All right? Uh, and so, uh, as you look at the text in the story in Exodus 14, uh, the development of the spiritual realities that He's sovereignly involved in what's going on, you see that God actively led them in circles. So they were following His glory in the cloud, and God actively led them around in circles. And you go, wow, I wonder why He's doing that. Why didn't He just go a straight line to the promised land? Well, we find out. Uh, because He wants Pharaoh to come out. And so we read Pharaoh, his spies, saw them wandering around, looked like they were wandering aimlessly, and Pharaoh concluded that they were lost and helpless, and if he brought his army back there, he could get all of his slave labor back. And then thirdly, of course, God's purpose is revealed that this all happened so that God would be glorified and everyone would know who was responsible and who God, the one true God is. Because at that time, uh, and in Egypt, you had this pantheon of gods. You know, the people had a god for everything. 
And what God was making this great statement that he was God alone. And there was no denying it. Again, in the New Testament, uh, you have Jesus' examples of saying uh, basically the same thing. In John chapter 9, uh, his own disciples, there's a blind guy that was born blind, and they say, uh, you know, normally we, we know why people have bad things happen to them because they're bad people. But this guy was born blind. Did his parents do something bad? And Jesus says, no, nobody did anything bad to make this poor guy blind. He is blind in order that God may be glorified. Yeah. And so when Jesus healed this guy, he was an incredible testimony to the whole crowd around as well as to the Jewish religious leaders. When they saw that, they could not deny that that, that, that happened. See? Uh, and then again, in, in John chapter 11, just a little bit while later, you know, the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11. Uh, the message comes, quick, Lord, come and see your best friend, your pal, Lazarus. He's dying. You've got to hurry. And Jesus says, okay. And what does he do? He hangs around there for four days and doesn't go. And his disciples were like, what the heck? And Jesus said, uh, this has happened, and I have waited for a reason, which is to glorify God. Because God, uh, Jesus knew that God was going to do a bigger miracle than just healing him from some you know, ailment. So when Jesus gets there, after the guy's already been dead for four days, when he brings him out and everybody sees that Jesus has brought this guy back, that's a way bigger miracle than, you know, some guy has the flu, the, you know, the corona flu or something or whatever it is, the virus, and he comes and heals him of that, you know. That's the small potatoes. But the text says when the crowd, this huge crowd saw this, many of them believed in Jesus. And it also glorified God by setting up Palm Sunday. That's what caused the big crowds on Palm Sunday. So everything throughout the Bible uh, that was done, in, you know, according to this fashion, all had to do uh, with the glory of God. Jesus said in John chapter 12, uh, he was facing the crucifixion. And his says, it says his soul became troubled. And it would be natural to ask, um, okay, my soul is troubled. How do I get out of this? That's what we would say. <laughs> this is a tight situation, and I don't want to be crucified. And why me? Let's get somebody else up here uh, and crucify them, not me. There's got to be another way. But Jesus said he couldn't think like this. He had to have a different perspective. Jesus said his purpose in the crucifixion, was to glorify God. That's what that was all about. God's glory would come from His grace to everyone uh, that believes in Him and is saved by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And all glory for it goes to God. I did nothing to save myself. Jesus did it all. 
And Jesus realized that. And he says, I've got to get up on that cross for God's purposes. And then uh, in verse 28 of John 12, after Jesus said that, they actually heard the voice of God confirm that. And he says, I will glorify your name, and I have done it, and I will do it again. All right? So, uh, again, all through the Bible, we see it. Um, and our problem, of course, is uh, it will not be in our time. You know, God's will come through for us, but in our view, it needs to be a timely manner. Lord, I, I, I can't make it. I can't go anymore. I can't do, you know, I need this now. So we have a problem uh, with the timing of it. And we need to understand it's going to be done in God's timing. And it's going to be done in a way that we, had, we would have never done it. The last thing the Israelis thought at the Red Sea was that the Red Sea was going to part. Who's ever heard of anything like that? And don't forget what we said last week. How big a miracle was that? Do you remember what we said? How wide the part had to be? It wasn't like the, the movie, the Charlton Heston movie, where they walked two abreast. Uh, no, uh, if you walk two abreast and you're three million people, it would take like three months to cross the Red Sea. Now, they had to go through... Uh, like 5,000 or more abreast, uh, and it would have to have been three to five miles wide. That is awesome. That is a big miracle, right? And they didn't expect that. It blew their mind. And so God is going to come through on His own timing, and He's going to do it in a way that you never would have dreamed, that you would not have done it that way. And in the meantime, guess what? we will have to suffer a little and we will have to endure it and overcome it through hardship, right? Uh, just keep what Paul said on your mind in Romans 8. He'd been thrown in prison. He'd been beat up. He'd had all kinds of trouble. And his perspective was, Romans 8, he says, uh, this suffering that we're going through now is momentary and it is light compared to the glory that we're going to have in the future in heaven. And he had his eyes on that. The glory of God in heaven. He was looking forward to that. And so he knew he could suffer through all the hardship that he was going through at that point in time. Psalm 50, verse 15. Uh, the psalmist says, quoting God, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Right? So, one scripture after another, all about the glory of God, and that's the way, the perspective that the authors of the Bible had, and that we should have as well, when we have a Red Sea experience. So in Exodus 14, their Red Sea experience uh, was the worst day of their life, they thought. But you know what? It really was the best day of their life. Because God had a plan 
to deliver his people in his own way, in his own time, and for his own glory. God being glorified is more important than my comfort. And always remember that they thought the worst day of their lives was at the Red Sea, but it was really the best day of their lives. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. For creating us to have this wonderful, intimate relationship with you. For the opportunity to serve you and glorify you in that relationship. And I pray, Lord, that we would all have the goal that Paul had in 2 Corinthians 5. Whether alive or dead, my goal is to make you look good, to serve you well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.